Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a hundred casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome again to New Books in Islamic Studies. Thanks for joining us. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new and exciting book in the study of Islam, and we chat with the author. For today's program, I had the pleasure of speaking with John Renard about his great new book, Islamic Theological Themes, a Primary Source Reader, which was published with University of California Press in 2014. Islamic theology is generally understood or approached in terms of its systematic or speculative forms. In this new book, Islamic Theological Themes, John Renard has produced a collection of primary sources that thinks through theological deliberation far beyond the narrow strictures of Kalem. This inclusive model is both chronologically expansive and geographically diverse. Renard offers relevant passages from the Quran and Hadith, the Tafsir tradition, narrative histories, manuals of moral direction, texts for spiritual guidance, creedal statements, and political theology. All of these sources are artfully introduced, leading the reader through the diversity of the Islamic tradition. In our conversation, we discuss human responsibility, the nature of God, the evaluation of non-Muslim beliefs, what merits community membership, the spiritual journey, functions of poems, stories, and letters, Iblis, mercy and justice, political succession, governance, and questions of leadership, and the social consequences of theological thinking. Without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with John Renard. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. Today I have the, the great pleasure of speaking with John Renard about his great new book, Islamic Theological Themes, a Primary Source Reader. Welcome, Jack. How are you? Thanks, Christian. Very nice to be, have a chance to chat with you like this. And uh, um, looking forward to... Uh, talking about this book it's it's it was a really uh it, you know that the term labor of love is tossed around a lot but this one really knocked uh, uh knocked the uh wind out of my sails toward the end just trying to get it finished i was really under a lot of uh, pressure on it because it, it's um 
it's a complicated book and it, it involves getting permission and paying for that permission and and then kind of putting the book together in such a way that it's balanced and thematic and that there is a pedagogical um, dynamic to it. So if I ran into something that wasn't going to work out or that I was going to have to pay a fortune for, I had to get rid of that and put something else on its place. And that might've caused me to have to juggle a few things and so forth. So it was right toward the end of last year of it. I was, uh, it was, it was a major stressor. Well, we appreciate your hard work because it really is an excellent book. And I, I think you achieved all those goals. It's, it's very, uh, well organized, um, well thought out and it, it's, it's a good read. The translations are very nice. So, um, before we get into, uh, some of that though, um, as is tradition in New Books in Islamic Studies, uh, we hope to learn a little bit more about you. So if you don't mind, could you tell us a little bit about how you got interested in the study of Islam, perhaps people that were influential in, in your approach or that got you interested in the topic? Sure. Well, this goes back uh, over over 45 years, actually, back to uh, the late 60s when I was teaching high school. And I was a Jesuit at the time, and uh, I was teaching at a Jesuit high school, and and they wanted me to teach Latin and Greek, which I had majored in as an undergraduate. And so I did some of that, and then they wanted me to teach religion because I was sort of halfway through a, a master's degree in Bible studies at the time. So they asked me to teach world religions to juniors. It was kind of the standard fare for high school juniors in Jesuit schools at the time. So I got into that, and I enjoyed it. And this was in the late 60s, 69, 70, and it was prior to the so-called Arab oil embargo. But even then, even before the time when people were getting really annoyed that they were taking our oil and things like that, there was still a feeling that I that I got when um, I talked to people about different religious traditions and so forth. That you could mention Hinduism, Buddhism, Taoism. And people kind of found it exotic and interesting, and and there really wasn't much at stake in the topic for them. But mention Islam, and uh, sort of the the emotional temperature in the conversation would sort of go up. And so I got more and more intrigued about it because, and I felt, I I basically felt bad about it because I, from what I knew at that point, uh, it was a very powerful, rich tradition. And I, I found a lot of beautiful material in it, just you know, from a very, very superficial level. And um, I decided that uh, I was, I was just finishing my master's. Went, I finished up teaching and went back to finish the other half of my MA in biblical studies. And I asked my Jesuit superior if I could go over to Israel and kind of to kill two birds with one stone, take a. a an 11 week course in intensive Arabic at the Hebrew university and then go to biblical sites on a weekend and kind of, you know, catch up and sort of round off the MA program for myself. And so they, they allowed me to do that. And I took this Arabic course that, uh, I had already tried to start beginning to learn Arabic just on my own. And I had got the alphabet down, but that was about it. And I had these two really wonderful teachers, one an Israeli woman and the other a Palestinian woman. And uh, they were they were wonderful teachers. 
so that was a, that was a great experience. And then I I had a chance to really knock around the country a little bit, and I met I met a lot of wonderful Palestinians, and just was really delighted at uh, the kind of the what I sensed was this the sociability and and the hospitality of of the culture and so forth. And uh, I figured I needed to do something like that before I decided on a, on a PhD program because I thought you know. If I don't like Arabic, uh, I'm not enough of, of a, a masochist to put myself through an Islamic <laughs> studies program. So I figured I'd better try it out. And I loved it. So I came back and I had my third year of theology still to do. This was in 72, the summer of 72. And I came back and I still had my third year of theology before I was going to be ordained. So I figured, you know, I wasn't going to get any Arabic done during that year. So I'd, whatever happened after that, I would probably do well to start over again. So I applied to a number of schools in Islamic studies, and most of them were sort of the Near Eastern languages and culture departments. And uh, and I, I got into a number of really fine places, and I decided to go to Harvard um, because the other places were in cities that I really, really wasn't interested in, <laughs> in living in for five years. So I thought, you know, Boston's a great place. So I went there. And I wound up taking first year Arabic and I was 28 years old and I was sitting in a room with Harvard freshmen, 18 year old kids. And they used to call me Gramps. Because <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was delightful. I mean, there were a number of people, well, Marilyn Booth, who's a, kind of a famous Arabic translator. She's over at the university of Edinburgh now. She was a college freshman. Then Ali Asani, who's at Harvard now, he was a college freshman, so I was across across the hall from her, sitting next to these delightful young folks. And I realized that uh, it would be a, a whole lot easier if I had started this at the age of 18 than at the age of 28. So that that was how I got into it. And um, and I basically uh, decided that uh, when I when I went to to Harvard uh, to start this program, I thought, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do Arabic for sure. And then I thought that since I'd done a bunch of biblical Hebrew. Maybe I could do medieval Hebrew as my second language. And uh, I found out from various people, that, you know, that's not probably the thing you want to do. You ought to talk to Wheeler Thaxton about Persian. So I did. And uh, Wheeler, Wheeler became one of my favorite teachers up there. And then there was a, a choice of you had to do two languages for your comps, prepare for that, and then two other subjects. And when I went there, I was hoping I could work on theology with Wilfred Cantwell Smith, whom I had heard of, and a man named George McDesey. And the day I got there, I went over to the department secretary and I said, how can I get in touch with Dr. Professor Cantwell Smith and Professor McDesey? And she said, well, you'll have to either go to Philadelphia or to Dalhousie University, <laughs> because they both just left. And uh, I was a little bit disturbed about that. Uh, because I figured I was going to have to make my way. And two people whom I had not heard of turned out to be my main uh, my main professors there, one, Anne-Marie Schimmel and uh, Oleg Grabar, who was uh, really a wonderful uh, historian of Islamic art. And I thought, I'd, okay, I'm, I'm going to make Sufism and Islamic art and architecture my, my third and fourth areas. So after a couple of courses with... Uh, Anna Marie Schimmel, she was very solicitous with graduate students and very interested. And um, I was working on my my comps, 
and I decided I'd better come up with a topic for a dissertation. And so I went and talked to her, and I said, I had this list of topics. And I said, what do you think about this? And she'd say, no, don't do that. That that person's too recent. Oh, don't do that. There are some relatives who will object. Oh, don't do that. There's too much secondary literature. And then I said, well, how about uh, Rumi's prophetology? She said, do that. There's almost nothing written on it. And it's a great topic. So that's how that happened. And, um, and as a result, um, I wound up working on two, two major subjects that I had no idea I would work on when I got there. And this is kind of the luck of the draw, and it turned out to be a very lucky draw. Yeah, that's fascinating. It's really interesting to hear this background, too, uh, kind of reflecting through my uh, imagined copies of your books in my head and thinking about the range that, that you cover in, in, in most of your books, and, uh, and this one as well. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how this particular project began to emerge as a book. You, you, you've written a ton, so when did you start thinking, we need to have uh, this reader? I started thinking about that in the early 90s. <laughs> and I had, uh, I had kind of put together a, a rough outline of something that would be um, an anthology but defining theology very broadly so that it wouldn't be mostly or even even predominantly or, or even certainly not all and, and not even predominantly hardcore systematic theology, the Kalam variety, because I had, uh, as a Jesuit, I, I had, I had uh, three years of a traditional MDiv program in theology, and I really appreciated... Um, the sense that theology isn't just this kind of uh, dry systematic discipline. It's, it suffuses um, cultures and literatures. And so I was, I was tinkering with a way of coming up with this kind of uh, an organic overview that would of course take, take account of the systematic, the sort of rational theology, that kind of thing, but that would also include um, for example, the theological aspects and themes of the scriptures, and in this case also the Hadith, um, and and kind of the broader cultural resonances of these theological themes. So I, I uh, applied for uh, an NEH summer stipend in the summer of 94, and... Um, I, I was at the time I was calling this thing Muslims on God's mind, which I thought was kind of cute, but <laughs> but it turned out to be cute, too cute by half actually, and so I never I never did wind up using that topic, um, that that title, but that was a good summer because it it allowed me to kind of hammer out uh, um, a general outline of it, and then um, I guess it was about around that time that. I, I gave a presentation in a in an AAR session that I called Kalam Chowder, which is also too cute by half. But everybody everybody got the joke, and or most, almost everybody. And so you know it was a kind of a combination of things percolating in the early '90s, and then kind of um, and getting to uh, um, that summer NEH uh, summer stipend when I was actually contemplating a two volume thing. Of, a, uh, a, 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 a monograph 
that would be a kind of a, one of these organic looks at the whole theological spectrum and then an anthology to match it. Well, it turned out that what I had thought would be a monograph had turned out, well, about 15 years later in this book, Islam and Christianity, to be sort of a hybrid of that. And then um, what I had originally wanted to be Muslims on God's mind turned out to be much more uh, descriptive Islamic theological themes. That So basically this book what had been percolating for about 20 years by the time I finally got it done. Yeah, well, congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. Um, yeah. So uh, listeners, uh, I'm sure, know how prolific you are. Um, and, and if you don't mind just talking about kind of your method for a moment, um, you have a history of producing really wonderful complementary volumes. And you mentioned this this one, Islamic Christianity, as almost not a direct compliment, but related to this reader. Could you could you talk a little bit about your approach to projects like this? And um, perhaps why do you think this model works well? Why do you, why do you continue to kind of create these projects? Well, I, that's, that's interesting. I, I guess I've always kind of liked the idea of, of broad spectrum projects. Um, I, I've only done a couple of things that were more narrow, like, well, basically the, I, my dissertation got published by SUNY that um, all the King's Falcons on Rumi's prophetology, but, just about everything else I've done uh, has been a broader kind of thing. And I, I just have always kind of enjoyed that. Um, in some ways I, I've, I've worried when I get into them, is this going to be impossibly big? <laughs> and, and I, I've, I've found myself saying, yeah, this is impossibly big. Why did <laughs> you do this to yourself? But in, in, so that basically there's been a lot of stuff left on the cutting room floor <laughs> in the process. Um, to make them to make them more tight and, and cohesive, but um, it's all about really for me trying to trying to define like for example in the, the Seven Doors to Islam and the Windows and House of Islam, which was a, a pretty close match of uh, companion anthology. Um, I was trying to, to again do this kind of broad spectrum of things that that uh, give insights into this kind of amorphous phenomenon that I labeled Islamic spirituality. But again, beginning with the, the primary source of the, the scriptural sources and then moving into um, more systematic things like uh, uh, pedagogy and uh, mystical treatises and things like that. So that I could sort of wrap it all together in a way that would, that I could develop in, in sort of a progressive fashion, you know, going from the less technical to things that would, uh, involve people in learning a little bit more of uh, the theory of Sufism as the theorists themselves have uh, articulated it. Um, and then then the, the most fun project I've ever done of all these uh, was the Friends of God pair, uh, Friends of God and Tales of God's Friends. I really hated to see that end, although I was, I was ready for them both to end. But I really, that was, that was just more fun than anything that I've ever done. Um, and I'm hoping that the, that the next one I'm going to work on will be as much fun as that, but we'll see. Um, I'll tell you about that later. Yeah. But so, so those are, those are uh, why I thought, well, you know, I looked around and um, I hadn't really intended to move into the, the area of hagiography, 
But what has happened uh, generally to make me decide on these different projects is that I look around and I discover that there's nothing available in these certain areas, for example. And there, there are specific studies of individual friends of God, specific studies on regions, um, friends of God in South Asia or friends of God in Turkey. or, But I could not find, this is back in the early, early in this uh, millennium, I couldn't find a single thing that gave a really decent overview of this whole huge phenomenon of Islamic hagiography. That was, that was what got me interested in trying to do that. Uh, and then kind of working through the material, I'd, I thought, well, there, there's a kind of a, a, a good structure that I could work out that would work on um, the lives of the friends of God and sort of patterns in their lives or themes. And then uh, looking at how these, that, that would be in the story. So the first part is really about the functions and, and themes and the stories. And then um, what those what that material tells you about how the friends of God uh, across this broad spectrum have engaged their various communities. And then I put these two more theoretical chapters at the end on theological themes and literary themes. And uh, it all just kind of unfolded as I was doing it. Um, and then... At, I, when I talked to the University of California press editor, uh, religious studies editor at the time, Reed Malcolm, um, I said, I really want to do this as a two-volume thing. Are you willing to do it? And he had been assistant to the previous religious studies editor back in the early 90s when I did the, the doors and windows. And he said, yeah. He said, let's talk about that. So we worked it out that whatever I was doing on the monograph, I could kind of be parallel working it we're uh, doing the the um, kind of planning the anthology with that with that companion role in mind. So that that's kind of how that worked out. Mm. Um, is that is this making some? Uh, this is great. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting, and I think um, you've been very successful in this with this model, and I think others would be be wise to follow it. So it's it's good to hear some of the the ways that you go about doing your, your wonderful work. So thank you. Thank uh, you. So in, uh, in all those previous volumes and in this volume as well, um, you, you highlight uh, both the geographic diversity and a wide range of chronological sources. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about the selection sources? You, talked to, you mentioned some of the kind of uh, practical constraints, but as far as... Uh, when you're constructing a reader like this, what are, what are you looking for? What kind of diversity do you hope to get? And as someone who uh, studies China, I, w- I would be interested to hear, you're one of the few people who always includes China, which I very much appreciate. So how, how do you well, go about thinking about your sources? Well, I, I look for interesting topics and things that would be um, big well, big topics, you know, the theme, themes of uh, of um, revelation, uh, prophecy. So I thought, I think, you know, I, I don't want to go too far afield that this, this book could be, could wind up six volumes if I don't kind of trim this down. So I, I started off by trying to decide on certain kinds of themes and uh, that would be arguably um, central 
to the theological enterprise, whether it's um, whether it takes the form of um, looking at the scriptural text in the Hadith and 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 seeing what those main themes is basically kind of. I thought, you know, what what would a phenomenologist of religion do looking at the Quran? So I picked out a couple of things that I thought would be interesting. You know, the, the kind of the classic phenomenological categories, transcendence, eminence, and that sort of thing. Um, and then I just basically followed up looking at, um, in the chapter on interpreting the sources, looking for good examples of major characters who had reflected on and, and done little or sometimes larger exegetical um, expansions on these on these particular kinds of texts. So that's basically what I did in chapter two is you know, I focused on the verse of light and the throne verse. So right away the the, uh, the material is limited. So it I, I try to make it pedagogically flow each chapter from its from its uh, preceding chapter. And then got a little bit into the hermeneutics, you know, so there are questions about, again, the basic classic things, occasions of revelation, um, rational interpretation of scripture, the causes of abrogation, how the Quran is a miracle, you know, the uh, uh, inimitable, hijaz, and all those kinds of things. So I figured that would be, that would be enough. And so that's, that's the basic material in the first two chapters. Um, And then I thought, you know, there's uh, before I went, before I got into the hardcore kalam kind of stuff, I thought there's there's another whole body of literature that deals with um, kind of the, the, the cultural aspects of how uh, Muslims defined have defined community in relation to the world around them, and then internally as well. So that was kind of the material for chapters three and four on. Muslim awareness of other religious communities, and then the, the large categories of creed and polemic. And um, I thought, you know, there are some really good texts that include for, for Montgomery Watt and a few other things like that that have large selections of creed in them, but you have to buy the whole book to get a, a good selection. So that was when I got in touch with people at Edinburgh and uh, tried to find out whether to give me a decent deal on a couple of those creeds and they did. So there you go. There, there's the creedal material in, in chapter four. And I tried basically to give a sample of there's a Handali, there's a Ghazali Ashari creed. There's a Maturidi creed. Um, there's a Shi'i slash Motazili creed. And then there's, um, a, a modern creed, Sayyid Ahmed Khan. Um, so then, then I got into the hardcore stuff, and this I was hoping that by the after people had, people had read the material in the first four chapters, this this kind of highly technical material, um, whose questions can be a little bit daunting, would seem a little more um, a little more easy to grasp. And started off with with um, doxography, you know. Shahrastani's rundown all the different on the different Muslim schools, which gives you a sense of the diversity of theological methods and perspectives within the community. Um, and then got into uh, 
the uh, sort of methodological overviews of, of Kalam. And again, I was looking for a way of defining it fairly, fairly uh, sparingly. You know, one would be an Asherite perspective, another would be a Motazili perspective. And then getting into some theological themes like prophetic revelation, prophetic miracle. Um, and then I wanted to put in an Ismaili perspective as well. So I got some uh, Tusi Ismaili views on post-prophetic authority. So that that was a text that I liked because it was it was not only kind of uh, a broadening of the community perspective, but also uh, moving beyond um, prophetic authority and you know what what happens then. Um, and then some themes: uh, God revealing, um, experiencing God hereafter. So that was a, that was kind of the uh, the general. Um, concern that I had with that. And then, then, the, then parts four and five, uh, that got into one of my, one of the things that I was most comfortable with, and that is spirituality and literature. And there again, I tried to find examples of texts by really major people, Rumi, Sana'i, Attar, Muhammad Iqbal, um, and, and themes that would follow up on the themes that we've been talking about in earlier chapters. And then chapter five, Part five, rather, uh, got into serious issues of ethics and, and governance. Ethics and theory, chapter nine, so it was kind of on, uh, beginning with Hassan al-Basri's letter on moral responsibility, which I just think is a really an amazing piece. And Valerie Hoffman had, uh, uh, I found out that she had translated that whole letter and she had not published it. So that's one of those good examples of the serendipity nature, serendipitous nature of how um, I, I managed to, to come across people who were uh, who had done things um, or who were in the process of doing things. So, you know, it was just, the whole process was a very it was a combination of careful planning and then happenstance that just moved in the right direction. So, Jack, uh, how do you how do you envision readers using this, perhaps in complement with what you do in the? Uh, Islam and Christianity monograph that you produced? Uh huh. That, that's a good question because I'm planning to try and do that for the first time next fall. <laughs> good luck. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it's going to be uh, it's going to be interesting. And what what I've done in the in the past, I've taught uh, a course called Islam and the Christian Theologian. Uh, I guess four times now, beginning back in the days when when I had the uh, Islamic Christianity volume just in, in the form of PDFs, which I provided to the, uh, actually the one before that one, I still had it in, in draft. And I asked, it was a group of honor students. We had 12 really bright honors kids in this little seminar. And one of their jobs was to help me edit the thing and, and rewrite things that need to be written. And they, they really got into it. But after that, then um, I, I started use, I started pairing that, Text with uh, Irfan Omar's two edited volumes, one of Tom Michel's essays, uh, Christian's View of Islam, and then Mahmoud Ayyub. Um, he he has uh, a volume that um, Irfan Omar, but, Mar- but Marquette edited called uh, A Muslim's View of Christianity. So they're basically collections of essays. And I found those very useful. And basically, what I did was just I tried to pair the material from those books with 
the chapters of the Islamic Christianity book thematically. Um, and so what I'm going to do this next fall, I think, I think I'll probably keep those two, uh, because next fall it's going to be a, a 500 slash 400 course, which means that it will be for majors and MA students. So I'll ask the MA students to do a couple of extra books, but I'm probably just going to try and, and do a thematic pairing as close as I can with the, the primary source text. So this will be really the first time that I've done that class with a heavy dose of primary source material. And I know that uh, this material, it will take a lot of, of pre-lecting, as they say. Now, next week, we're going to talk about this, and here's what to look for. And um, so I'm looking forward to it, but um, I'm, I must say, I'm, you know, I'm a little apprehensive about how this, uh, how getting into some of this heavy-duty primary source material is going to work. So I think I'll just have to, as I say, be, uh, be very careful about laying the thematic groundwork out ahead of time. Hmm. There's a, a few sections that I wonder if you could kind of elaborate on for us. Um, in one of the chapters on spirituality and literature, you talk yeah. about poems and stories and letters, uh, and these are mediums and, and, and forms that we many would probably not think of in theological ways, that this is theological literature. Um, so what, what do you say, uh, how, how can we understand the theological function of this type of communicating this, the underpinnings of spiritual direction? Oh, well, let, let me just start with, for example, uh, Sana'i's um, enclosed garden of um, of uh, supreme reality, Hadika to Hakika. That that struck me as as so perfect for this because he gets right in and riffs poetically on the very kinds of things that the masters of Kalam had been doing for hundreds of years by his time, talking about God's attributes, the meaning of divine unity, the problem of anthropomorphisms. Um, but that that was a really that was a no brainer in a sense because that was that was really talking about the very things that the theologians who who call themselves theologians were talking about. And the same with uh, the Ibn Abad letter on relating to God's attributes and names. Um, I call that pastoral theology in that section because what Ibn Abad was doing there is again he's he's working as a popularizer of the very same themes that Sana'i was treating uh, as a poet and that the theologian had been working on, well, since since the ninth century. So what I was looking for um, in, in these literary, uh, literary examples of theology, doing theology literarily, so to speak, um, was reflections of those main themes that had been talked about in the earlier chapters and, and giving a little space to the different ways of expressing those very same themes. That is not technical. That's not, um, it's not strictly rational in, um, in terms of it's, uh, it's being a, a kind of ABC progress, but, you, you get somebody, for example, like Rumi, 
in in one of his discourses, uh, in, in this case translated by Wheeler Thaxton, um, I called it Rumi on the many languages of God talk because Rumi does what Rumi does everywhere, and that's he he gets into almost sort of a stream of consciousness sometimes, and he he kind of he kind of uh, segues from one interesting topic to another, and then a little bit later he'll come back to where he began. So it's almost he does theology almost the way um, a a narrative poet does a frame tale. Did I ever tell you the story about so-and-so? And, oh, that reminds me of the story of so-and-so, which reminds me of this other story. And, oh, let me finish that last one before I go on to the second one and then back to the first one. So he begins three three themes and then finishes the third theme and then finishes the second theme and then finishes the first one. That's that's something that he does in, in the Masnavi quite a bit. So it's definitely that this is a really a good example of of reflection in in a non technical way, so he gets at these these themes. What do people mean when they talk about God? And here again, just like the material from Sena'i and Ibn Abad, and and then also Ibn Tufail in that next section on narrative approaches to major theological themes, he is he's reflecting in a non technical way on the very things that are the substance of of the theological debate, uh, in in the more explicitly theological discipline that generally gets known by the name Kalam. Hmm. Um, so, and then there's a, a theme that I knew I had to get in there somewhere in the book and I didn't have a place for it yet. And that was the, the Muhammad's spiritual finality and Najmuddin Dayarazi's uh, book, the, the, the path of God's servants, Ersad al-Ibad. That is really a beautiful, highly metaphorical, um, Really, it's a poetic reflection only in prose on on how um, Muhammad was the perfect loaf baked in the oven of divine uh, divine uh, revelation. You know, so you get this this whole uh, ambiance of metaphor, and that's that's one of the things I really like about that. And I I knew I I couldn't leave that out because it's so much a part of of the literary legacy and the the, um, the mystical, the Sufi mystical legacy, but it's all of a piece with the, with the work that the theologians and the the, uh, the philosophical theologians had been doing for centuries. Now, in the in the final section, you focus on uh, ethics, both in theory and practice, um, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the ways that ethical discussions got put into action. So, for example, what, are, what would be the social consequences of theological thinking, according to these authors that you included? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think I, I would start with uh, the issue that I brought up first in that question on ethics and theory, and that's um, this, I think it's the underlying theme, and at least in my minimal experience of dealing with uh, Islamic ethics as as a specific topic, but the underlying question uh, goes right back to the the issues that I brought up in uh, the the section the chapters on uh, reading the sacred sources and interpreting them. Um, the question of divine freedom and human responsibility, and so basically, the the ethics in theory, uh, as I saw it here, is 
um, a variety of discussions from different perspectives, Bakalani, uh, Bazdawi's Maturidi perspective, the, the uh, Ikhwan al-Safa, um, and beginning with Hassan al-Basri. These are all different perspectives on what it actually means for a person who, who believes in God and in God's perfect agency to still take responsibility. I, I think about this this um, proverb that I heard years ago, and it, and it basically comes down to anyone who denies that God is omnipotent is an unbeliever. Anyone, anyone who denies that he sins is a liar. So basically, it's kind of, uh, you're, you're, you're stuck either way. It's like, it's like um, God telling Iblis to jump into the water, but don't get wet. It's that kind of dilemma that runs through this this ethical discourse. How do how do I, as a as a human being who's trying to struggle with how to live a good life, deal with my own responsibility and still believe that God is pulling uh, all the strings, so to speak? So that that was one I had in mind there, and when I chose these different readings, and um, I think in that collection there, that that chapter chapter nine on theory. Um, the translation of Bazdawi's Maturidi perspective is a really good example of close reasoning if I ever saw it, because he's a, I, I, I wanted to get a text from Maturidi himself, and um, and I looked at his Kitab al-Tawheed, and he's got sections in there on istiqa'a, you know, the moral capacity, the capability. And uh, a friend of mine over in Birmingham uh, University of Birmingham, David Thomas had translated some of Maturidi, and so I, I asked him if he thought it would be possible for him to to have a look at this text, and I sent it to him. And would he be willing to to contemplate translating it? And he worked on it, worked on it, and uh, he came back and he said, "This is devilishly difficult." And the earlier pieces that he had translated of Maturidi's were equally difficult, but he he kind of bulldozed his way through them. But he said, I found this text by Bazdawi, who is a Maturidi, uh, and it's on the same theme. It's a little, it's a lot clearer, and the Arabic's much clearer than Maturidi's. And so that's how that wound up in there. And I, I find it difficult to get through because it is so precise and so nuanced. But, so that's kind of at one end of the spectrum of ethical theory, boy, this is this is really cutting right to the bone, um, philosophically and systematically speaking. But then the other ones, uh, and also the Abdul Jabbar Mutazi review, that that's pretty. Uh, we're getting back into uh, serious systematic thinking there. But the uh, the chapter on ethics and practice then gets gets into. Uh, a, a little more experiential view of um, both personally and societally what this dilemma of God being all-powerful and human beings being responsible nonetheless for their choices. So that's kind of what I thought would... I was hoping that would be two chapters that would balance each other off, first being pretty difficult kind of reasoning in some cases, and the second chapter being more experientially based. So 
not so much in, in on the level of uh, the, the the views of the imamate and so forth, but when you get into personal and uh, social ethical guidance, you get you hear a man like Ibn Hazm uh, reflecting on anxiety and self knowledge, and it's it's really it's really amazing. For Ibn Hazm, I, I want I also wanted to get him in there. So this is another one of these getting back to this question of why I chose certain things. I thought I got to have Ibn Hazm in here somewhere. And I remembered his text on anxiety. And so I thought, you know, this is interesting. This is a guy who has a reputation for being a real hard nose. And here he is just kind of letting his hair down <laughs> and, and uh, very self-critical. And, and then um, Ghazali talking about this contentment with divine destiny, um, talking in a, in a mode, a pastoral mode that Ghazali is, and I think probably as good at it as anybody in the tradition and talking about how it is possible to be at peace with this, this ethical dilemma, divine destiny. Yeah. You, you have to deal with that somehow, but you have to be content that, uh, you are going to make your choices and you'll have to deal with the, with the consequences, but Divine destiny includes a large measure of mercy and, let's say, ethical leeway, so to speak. Mm. Now, the the final chapter uh, focuses on ideas about political succession and governance. For for those that perhaps are not familiar with uh, the tradition as well, why would we have a discussion about leadership in in a theological conversation? Um. Well, I, I suppose to, to put it in a, in non-technical terms, um, it, it's all about the two principal schools of thought about the nature of succession to the prophet as an authority over the community. And, um, you know, that most people have heard um, everybody knows the difference or the, 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 what they perceive to be the enmity between Sunnis and Shis. I mean, anybody who listens to the news now about Yemen is hearing that, that one of the big uh, military forces in play now against Al Qaeda are the, the Shiite Houthis and against the Sunni Al Qaeda. But you know, that's kind of like, uh, asking people if they understood what was going on in the troubles in Northern Ireland. Said, yeah, yeah, the Catholics and the Protestants, they hate each other. Hmm. So this is this is really a little bit, it's an attempt to put something um, a little more specific, uh, make something a little more specific available to a reader about exactly how these differences of opinion hinged on the notion of authority um, and how authority devolves um, from God through the prophet and on through the history of the community. Uh, and that's that's why I thought that that would need to be in there. It, it, it is technical, but it's it's at the beginning of all, practically all of the treatises of theology, of pretty much every school. Asheri's got his one at the beginning, Maturidi's got his at the beginning. In other words, the, the notion of the imamate and the debates on it are are absolutely essential uh, in, in all the, the more hardcore sort of systematic theological uh, traditions. Well, you've, you've produced another uh, excellent volume, and uh, we appreciate all your hard work. 
I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about some of the things you're working on now, which are probably equally as exciting. Sure. Um, well, right at the moment, I'm uh, I'm working on a on a revised edition, fifty percent revised edition of uh, historical dictionary of Sufism, which came out ten years ago, and that's basically a that's a little um, one volume toolbox. Um, that uh, basically is uh, everything I always wanted to know about Sufism and do long enough to type it out. That's kind of my definition of that book. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of closing in on the end of that. And what's coming up next is is a, a monograph that is, at least for the moment, titled Crossing Religious Boundaries, Exemplary Lives in Jewish, Christian, and Islamic Traditions. And uh, I'd started tinkering with this some years ago, kind of as uh, as a follow-on to the Friends of God and, and Tales of God Friends com- combination. And I was looking for a way to to under to use these paradigmatic personalities, exemplary lives. At first, I was going to do it just in uh, just again just uh, Christian and Islamic, and then I thought, well. It, it wouldn't add that much to the book in terms of size if I if I included uh, 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 an acknowledgement of the major characters in the Jewish tradition. But basically, I'm looking to use the uh, the phenomenon of exemplary lives as a way of of um, bridging, or showing how these these figures can bridge the gaps between and among these traditions. So it's a part, it's a three part thing. And the first part is called hagiographies compared, retelling the tales of religious exemplars. And that's basically a a look at, at the narrative themes uh, and their theological implications. And then a look at the theological themes more specifically, uh, looking at how the literature weaves in, um, to the narratives, theologically and religiously rooted devices that are designed to communicate tradition-specific concerns. Um, and then third chapter in that part is how stories open doors across traditions, and that looks at the, the, not the function of the theological themes, but now the function of narrative in these stories. Um, so you get into things like uh, the social function, uh, constructions of gender, institutional pedagogy, political functions, aggrandizing individual figures, uh, dueling institutions, you know, these narratives of how my shrine is more powerful than your shrine, things like that. Um, and then the part two is get into the, the specific characters. It's called meeting the exemplars. Um, and I divided it into, into three different kinds of uh, thematic areas. One one being uh, historical dimensions, looking at some typology. Basically, it's a typology of some of these major characters, progenitor type, uh, reformer, activist type, uh, cross-cultural witness, missionary warrior, those kinds of types. And then theological or devotional dimensions. And again, it's looking at a typology of characters, people who are fonts of wisdom, knowledge, and sanctity, uh, the contemplative, the uh, the conduit of divine presence and power, like the healer, the wonder worker, um, and then 
a chapter on on exemplarity and the way it is communicated uh, along with religious authority. So uh, that would be part two. And then part three is the, is the section that I'm really looking forward to the most uh, because it's all new for me and it's it's where the learning curve gets really steep. And it's called Geographies Shared, Religious Crossroads in the Greater Mediterranean. And the purpose of this section is to, to look at how in three geographical areas, um, Spain and North Africa, the, the Central Middle East, and then uh, Anatolia and the Balkans, how in those three areas there is um, a crossover uh, in the personalities of certain exemplary figures who, whose meanings who have sort of hybrid meanings, you might say. In other words, a character who um, would be of interest and even of devotional connection with um, more than one of the two, more than one of the, uh, the three traditions. So in Jewish and, and um, pardon me, Christian and, uh, and Islamic or Jewish and Islamic shrines in Spain and North Africa, um, in, in the Central Middle East, Christian and Islamic, or sometimes also Jewish. And then Anatolia and the Balkans, again, a Christian and Muslim. So you get characters like Heather and St. George, who are major kind of crossover characters. What I'm, what I'm going to try and do is look at some more of these, these figures, um, many of whom I've, I've never encountered yet, I hope. And I hope I will encounter as examples of um, kind of the the personal dimension of how these religious communities have actually crossed crossed over historically. And I'm using examples mostly from late antiquity and early medieval times. Wow, that sounds like a great great project, and uh, we we definitely look forward to that. Uh, thanks again, Jack, for your time and. Uh, Thanks again for producing another one of your wonderful volumes, and I hope listeners will pick it up. Well, thanks very much, Christian. It's a delightful to talk to you, and, I, and it's, um, it's fun to, to get back thinking about this. I, I, the book um, pretty much was done a year ago, or a little less than a year ago, and, and now I'm, now I'm uh, kind of, I've, I've nursed my bruises from it enough to want to go back and read it again. <laughs> well, good luck with your course. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks again for listening to New Books in Islamic Studies. That was my conversation with John Renard about his great new book, Islamic Theological Themes, a primary source reader, published at the University of California Press in 2014. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.